Our scripture today, again, is from Luke 22. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me and he was numbered among the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. The gospel of the Lord. What does it really mean to follow Jesus? What does it look like? What is this crazy thing we call discipleship? Maybe you've noticed there are competing answers out there, uh, certainly competing pictures of Jesus, and along with that, competing pictures of what the Christian life should be. And to be fair, even as we look within the pages of the New Testament, we see that there are different details and different uh, lives lived in some ways by different followers of Christ. Uh, Peter ministered to the Jews and Paul ministered among the Gentiles. We see the Apostle John living to a, a ripe old age while his own brother James uh, was martyred at a very young age, possibly in his 30s. But despite important differences like that, each of those lives testified to Jesus, displayed Jesus loud and clear. So what was it about their lives that point to Jesus, and how can we live lives that point others to the beauty and worth of our Savior? 
Today in the book of Luke, we are in this section called the Last Discourse. Discourse, uh, when you're reading the Gospels, is just sort of Bible scholars speak for a section of a Gospel where Jesus is talking or teaching as opposed to doing miracles or, or having some dialogue or some narrative section. Uh, so I've entitled this The Last Lesson. You could think of Last Discourse as simply Last Lesson. And in this last lesson of Christ that Luke records, Jesus gives his followers some final words, some instruction to prepare them for the road before them. He's preparing them for the trial that is to come immediately with his own arrest and crucifixion and what they will go through, but also giving them some instruction that applies to the rest of their lives. So if we want to learn what it really looks like to follow Jesus, this is a good place to start. So we are still here in the upper room. Jesus has just given us, his followers, the Lord's Supper. This, this means to, to remember him. We talked about that last week. And in the conversation that follows after the supper, which is also the last moments Jesus has with his disciples before, before he goes out uh, to pray, to wait to be arrested, this is the conversation that takes place around the dinner table and here we learn some important lessons about what it looks like to follow Jesus. First, though, the disciples have a key misconception that needs to be dealt with. And this is the first point, of which there will be five, by the way. The first point is that following Jesus is not a means to self-aggrandizement. Maybe I should have thought of a a simpler word than aggrandizement, but self, I don't know, you can, you can think of one for me. Anybody got it? What, what's a simple word for aggrandizement then? Glorif Self-glorification, self, I don't know. See, see, you don't have one either. So don't criticize. Verse 21, <laughs> behold, the hand of him who betrays me is at the table, Jesus says. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Just a note here. You know, Jesus, he's aware of his betrayer's plot. He knows what Judas is up to. But I don't think we should understand him to be sort of passive-aggressive here. He knows who the betrayer is, but Luke brings out uh, Jesus' grief, I think. There's a genuine grief when he says, woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. Remember that going back to Palm Sunday, which in the context of Luke was only a few days ago, Christ was weeping even as they're shouting and rejoicing. He is weeping as he rides on that donkey into Jerusalem, knowing that this city would reject him and uh, reject the, the peace he came to bring, that he would be crucified, but that the city would later be destroyed. Jesus is clear on the reality of divine judgment. He doesn't flinch in the face of that. So much of what we know about the doctrine of hell from Scripture comes from the teaching of Christ, and yet he is grieving here. He is not gleefully eager to see his enemies destroyed. He is not flippant about it. He is grieved by it. But in the context of what's going on in Luke, we see Jesus thinking of others when he has every right to be thinking of himself. So it's jarring to us to see the disciples thinking of themselves when they really ought to be thinking of Jesus. He's just mentioned 
that he's mentioned before, actually, that he will be betrayed and killed. And now he says the hand of his betrayer is here. The time has come. And what do they do? They turn the conversation to themselves. Verse 23, they began to question one another, which of them it was, which of them it could be who was going to do this. To be fair to them, that's a natural question, right? I'm sure it came as a shock to hear that one of their number was a traitor. It's understandable to wonder which one of these men, these guys who have been like your family for the past three years, which one is going to betray Jesus? But still it's striking that no one, as far as we see here, voices any concern for Jesus himself. They're only questioning one another. And if there were any doubt that the disciples are meant to be seen as kind of self-absorbed here, the next verse removes all doubt, right? A dispute rose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Are you kidding me? And think about what's going on here, and this is what they're fighting about. Jesus has just instituted the Last Supper where he's, he's talked about his, his broken body and shed blood poured out. He's about to die for our sins, and this is what the disciples are talking about in that context. Which of them is the greatest? No, not which of them is the greatest, right? Which of them was to be regarded as the greatest? It's not even about who is actually doing the best as a follower of Jesus. It's about who people will think is the best. They're not comparing their abilities, accomplishments, or even virtues. They're having a popularity contest. It is a stunning display of self-absorption. It's hard to imagine them having this argument out loud there in the upper room with Jesus right there teaching them about his suffering and death, his rejection, which is to come. And yet, maybe that is the surprising part, that they're having the argument out loud. Maybe we shouldn't be too hard on the disciples for simply saying out loud the kinds of thoughts that we say in our hearts all the time. Have you never found yourself comparing yourself to others, whether it's in the workplace or in the classroom, on a team, even in church? Have you never found yourself comparing yourself to others, trying to evaluate who is the greatest, maybe rigging the system always a little bit so that it works out to be you? You never found yourself dwelling on who other people might like the best, might see as the best, the, the smartest, the most talented, the best looking, or, or whatever, fill in the blank. The disciples, I think, they just shed light on the prideful self-absorption that marks all of our sinful hearts. We all engage in this comparison game. Jesus is about to die. He sent them on a mission, or he's going to, and they're preoccupied with who is the best. Jesus is risen now, but people around us are dying, and he sent us on a mission. And does our self-absorption never distract us from our Savior's business? So the point here, seeking greatness as the world defines it, is not what it means to follow Jesus. It's not a means to self-aggrandizement. And seeking greatness as the world defines it in the world's eyes, it's what led the disciples to later abandon Jesus when he's arrested. It's what led Judas to betray him. It's what led Peter to deny him. It's what led the chief priests and scribes to call for his death. 
what leads Pilate ultimately to crucify him. So Jesus gently but clearly is going to correct this attitude. And this is our second point, maybe just a part of the first point, I don't know. Following Jesus, what it does mean is humble service. Following Jesus means a life of humble service. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. For who is greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. So Jesus makes a contrast here between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of God. Among the Gentiles, the nations, kings are large and in charge, right? They lord it over the people, enjoying all the perks that come with their position. Like the old Mel Brooks line, it's good to be king. I want to point out the, in that second part of verse, uh, is it verse 25 there? Yes. Those in authority over them are called benefactors. So benefactor in that context, Greek, Roman context, it's a, a term of endearment almost that people would use for their leaders. The emperor Vespasian uh, would later be called hailed as benefactor and savior by the Roman people after he stomped down the Jewish uprising into the dust. And this was in the confrontation that led to the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70 we've talked about before. You know, it seems counterintuitive, but when a ruler is domineering, even oppressive, oftentimes people end up loving them for it. Certainly not the people that were stomped down into the dust, people who benefit from it. You know, the prophet Jeremiah noticed this. He uh, well, actually, this is God speaking through the prophet Jeremiah. The prophets prophesy falsely. The priests rule at their own discretion. My people love to have it so. It's a means to seeking greatness in the eyes of people, right? According to Jesus, the people of God need a different understanding of greatness. Don't try to be great, is what he's saying. Just serve the people around you. And this, as he says, is especially true for leaders. Like the leaders, these clueless disciples are destined to become. So just as a clarification here, a side note, Jesus is not saying refuse to be a leader or that leaders should spend their time doing service projects or odd jobs instead of leading. The point is that leadership itself or whatever role you have, however you're called to serve, is a call to serve. It should be viewed as service and it should be carried out in that spirit of humble service. Jesus certainly was a leader of his disciples, certainly led and taught them, but he did so as humble service for their benefit, for their edification. That is happening right now in the context of our sermon text. Think about what a self-absorbed response to the disciples bickering would have been. That's not hard for me to do. I just have to think about what my response would have been. Would have been something like, dude, I'm about to go to the cross here. You need to be thinking about me. What are you doing arguing about who's the greatest? You don't get it. But he doesn't reply in that spirit at all, does he? Even as he is anticipating the weight of the world about to come crashing down on his shoulders, 
Jesus sees the lesson that they need to learn in that moment, and he patiently teaches them, calls them to serve one another the same way he has served them, as he makes clear in verse 27, where he says, I have been among you as one who serves. I've been a servant, and I'm calling you to be a servant. He doesn't ignore their attitude. He, he corrects it, but he does so with gentleness and with patience. And he's calling them to act in that same spirit. Following Jesus, representing Jesus, must be done in the same spirit as Jesus himself. Do nothing, Paul said, from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And he goes on to describe how Christ did not count equality with God the thing to be grasped, but humbled himself by taking on the form of a what? A servant. Tim Hawkins, Christian comedian, has that bit you may have seen about a very churchy phrase, to have a servant's heart. He says, if someone says you have a servant's heart, you know they want you to start stacking chairs. <laughs> to have a servant's heart means you're a loser, you're a pushover. And of course he's being funny, but it's funny because there's maybe some truth to it. You know, I've seen the spiritual gift of service explained as if you have the gift of service, you like doing things behind the scenes that no one ever notices or appreciates, unlike the preachers and worship leaders who need to be the center of attention, or you know, the, those who have the gift of administration, they need to be in charge, but you just want to you know, be behind the scenes. And that's what Tim Hawkins, I think, hits on, that we still assume the world's perspective of servant. It means low profile, low skill, lowly tasks that no one would ever want to do unless there's something wrong with them. Servant's heart means there's something wrong with you. Being a humble servant means you're a loser and a pushover. You need to do something that gets you attention, that gets you acknowledgement and uh, comfort and prestige and some kind of tangible reward for your efforts. That might be the right outlook on life if Christ were still in the grave and there were nothing left to life but eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die it might be the right outlook on life if we didn't have a Savior who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So because the gospel is true, humble service turns out to be the most glorious way to live because it's living like Jesus lived. Humble service reflects the image of Christ, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. But lest we think of this humility as a kind of stoic strength for people with a martyr complex, the next point is that following Jesus is for weak and broken people. We're going to skip to verse 31. I'm going to save uh, the next couple verses here, 28 to 30, through the, for the end. And before I read here, this will be verses 31 to 34, I want to point out an important feature of the Greek text that's difficult to translate into today's English. Uh, your Bible might have a footnote explaining this kind of thing, but uh, in, in Greek text, 
you've got plural and singular second-person pronouns. That means you can refer to you, meaning one person, or you, meaning a group of people, and it's always specific whether you're talking about a group or just one person. And here in the text, verse 31, the word you is plural, meaning Jesus is talking about the disciples, uh, but then for the rest, it's, it's singular, meaning Jesus is talking to just Peter. I'll give you a tip if you ever are curious about whether uh, the Bible is using you meaning a group or you meaning singular, you can actually uh, go to the King James Version because uh, it was written when English still made this distinction. I'm not usually an advocate of the, the KJV, but it's a good resource for this. If the KJV says you or ye, uh, that's a group of people, but if it says thee or thou, it's just talking about an individual. So today's text would read something like, Simon, Simon, Satan demanded to have you, meaning you guys or y'all or yins if you're from western Pennsylvania. Satan demanded to have you, disciples, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for thee, Peter, that thy faith may not fail. And when thou hast turned again, strengthen thy brothers. So Satan is going to attack the disciples, the followers of Jesus. He has demanded to sift them like wheat. And this sifting, don't think of a fun little activity for kids at the beach with their little pail and their sieve and they're, you know, collecting the sand, uh, seashells. And this is a violent process of breaking down the wheat to separate the grain from the inedible hull. It's like saying Satan has demanded to take you apart. And Jesus does not say, I have prayed for you so that Satan doesn't get to do this. He says, I prayed for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail. The attack will come, but through Christ's intercession, his followers will survive it. And what's fascinating to me about this is that even though all the disciples are attacked, Jesus is calling Peter, he's going to work through Peter to strengthen and restore them after the attack. We know from, all the, from the other gospel accounts that when Jesus is arrested, most of his followers cut and run. Peter does follow along, and so does another uh, disciple, most likely John, who actually goes farther than Peter, actually enters into the uh, court of the high priest where Jesus is tried. Uh, but Peter is remembered at this moment for his spectacular overestimation of his own courage, his spectacular failure in actively denying that he even knows Jesus. He ends up denying any association with Jesus at all when he's asked, not by soldiers or officials or anyone with power, but by simple bystanders, bystanders including a servant girl. And this is who Jesus calls to strengthen the other remaining disciples after they've been beaten up by Satan's attacks. Who does he call? The guy who was beaten up the worst is the one he calls to strengthen them. Peter will become a leader in the early church. On the first Pentecost, he preaches the first gospel sermon. He has this position, position of prominence. And Jesus calls him to strengthen his brothers here, not because he's a brazen loudmouth and therefore a natural choice for a leader, but Jesus calls Peter in this role because Peter is going to stand face to face with his own weakness, his own failure, his own cowardice, He's going to be confronted by his inadequacy for the task ahead of him in a way that goes beyond what the others will face. And that means he will know even deeper than his brothers just how dependent he is on grace. 
it will be more clear to him, more real to him, that the only way that he is still standing is that Jesus prayed for him. It's the only reason his faith has not failed entirely. Christ has not called Peter to do that which he is capable of doing. He's not able, as he boasted that he would, to bear witness to Christ, even if it meant arrest, imprisonment, or death. He can't stand up to the questioning of curious bystanders. Bystanders. I don't know why I make that into standards. But Peter knows, uh, by the end of the book of Luke, he finds out that he can't do this. But then, look at the sequel. Luke also wrote the book of Acts, of course. By the end of the book of Acts, Peter does end up bearing witness to Christ even at the cost of arrest, imprisonment, and beating. And as Jesus predicts at the end of John's gospel, Peter did follow Jesus even to the point of death. So what changed, and how did Peter get there? He didn't get there by becoming even more brash and brazen, not by growing in in self-confidence and self-esteem, not by becoming stronger, but by becoming weaker by recognizing how truly weak he was, by learning what it means to rely on the intercession of Jesus, to rely on the Spirit. A good good application that comes to mind here might be to pray. Prayer in your life uh, may be difficult because it seems, feels so unproductive at times, right? I'm not getting anything done while I pray, and I have so many things to do. In part, that's the point. Prayer is a reminder that we lack the strength, that we lack what we need, and we are dependent on God to give us grace we need for each season, each day, each moment of life. But even looking at prayer, we're not strong enough in prayer to make it through. The final determining factor in our lives, in our faith not failing, is not that we are praying, but that Jesus intercedes and prays for us. Our prayer lives are too weak to make it through. But Christ prays for us. He intercedes on behalf of his people. Without him, our faith would fail. But with him, all things are possible. His strength is made perfect in our weakness. So following Jesus is for weak and broken people, and we follow him as weak and broken people. And it's essential to know this because the road before us will be difficult. And we are often tempted to forget. We see the difficulty here in the fourth point, which is don't expect the world to like you. Starting in verse 35, he said to them, when, you, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. That was before. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. It was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. The key here is the contrast that Jesus is making between what it was like when he sent them out before versus what it will be like for them now. When he sent them out 
They sent out the twelve back in Luke chapter 9 to proclaim the gospel, and he commanded them to go empty-handed. No food, no money, not even a change of clothes, and they ended up lacking nothing. They always depended on the kindness of strangers. It's like Blanche. Not Blanche from the Golden Girls, but Blanche from the, what is it? I don't know, there's a play. Okay, there you go, thank you. Something about a streetcar. Uh, they always depended on the kindness of strangers, but they won't be able to depend on that kindness anymore. And the reason for that is in verse 37. Jesus will be numbered among the transgressors, as was foretold in Isaiah chapter 53. So Jesus will be considered a transgressor, a lawless person, more literally, a, a, a criminal they are going to release this guy named Barabbas who had been in jail for insurrection, murder. He was an enemy of the state. And so that Jesus now takes his place, essentially, as the one that is crucified instead, means the crowd viewed Jesus as even worse than Barabbas. So what will they think of his followers? Something like the Manson family, maybe? One chapter earlier, Jesus said, You will be hated by all for my name's sake. Everywhere they go, the authorities see the apostles as a danger to society. In Acts chapter 20, uh, 27, Acts 17, rather, people accused Paul and Silas of turning the world upside down. They, they are turning our, our culture on its head. Things aren't as they should be, and it's these guys doing. They're destroying our our great and glorious Roman society. So when Jesus says, by a sword, this is a statement about the conflict to come. We could get into the history of interpretation. There's been some wild stuff, and sometimes still is some wild stuff about these swords. Jesus clearly isn't calling them to use swords to bring the kingdom by force. If that's the goal, those two swords aren't going to cut it. Um, thank you, pun intended. Two swords aren't enough, and it's very likely when Jesus says it is enough, that's en it's more like that's enough, you guys don't get it. He's not even calling them to use those swords necessarily to defend themselves against persecution. They try to use one of those swords to prevent Christ's arrest in the moments to come, and Jesus tells them to knock it off, right? John Calvin writes about the shameful and stupid ignorance of the disciples that they would think Jesus was saying to fight with swords of iron. Shameful and stupid ignorance is a wonderful phrase to file away for future use. Uh, committee meetings or something might be useful to you. I don't know. Don't, don't use that. That's just funny how people could get away with writing in the past decades, centuries. But... The point, though, is that we shouldn't expect the world to open its doors for the church. That's his point. Before disciples, people welcomed you and provided everything you need. You didn't need to take anything with you. It's not going to be that way anymore. Don't expect them to do any favors. The point is not that the civil sphere is always and completely hostile because it's not. that There are benefits and things and tax-exempt status and whatever. The point is that the disciples should no longer expect the world to welcome them. We are not entitled to live in a culture that shares our values. We are following a king who was hated, rejected, and crucified. Don't expect the world to treat you better than it treated Christ. So the New Testament does not teach the kind of prosperity gospel that says Jesus endured all this 
hardship and, and suffering so that you don't have any hardship or suffering. You can be a healthy, wealthy consumer of the world's goods. You know, the New Testament gospel gives us so much more than that. You are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We are in union with Christ, and that means both the suffering uh, and his rejection may come upon us, but beyond that, the glory uh, is something that we uh, rejoice in as well. When Christ calls a man, said Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he bids him come and die. Take up your cross, Jesus said. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So when God sends blessings your way as he does, enjoy those things as a good and perfect gift. doesn't mean that all of life is miserable. I'm not saying that. But expect hardship and don't be surprised by it. Don't let it distract you from what Jesus has taught about the humble service of weak and broken people hanging on by a strong and perfect grace. But our final point here to close with is that following Jesus is rewarded. Going back to verse 28, uh, this is actually concluding uh, discussion earlier of Jesus' correction of them as they were talking about their own greatness. He says, You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. We could talk about what that last verse means. It kind of depends on your view of the end times and is there a future restoration of Israel where these twelve disciples are having some leadership role in the millennial reign, or do the 12 tribes of Israel kind of, is that a figure of the entire unified people of God and the new heavens and the new earth? For right now, this morning, I just can't bring myself to be interested in that discussion because what's interesting to me is that Jesus is clearly tying this to not their future service, but the fact that they've already stayed with him in his trials up to that point that this is a, in a sense, a gracious reward that he's giving them for what they have done just being there. They have been with him in, in the challenges that he's faced in ministry up to this point. I'm not sure how much help they've been, but they've been there. And looking back on what we've seen from the book of Luke so far, they all often seem to be more of a trial than a help. But uh, just a couple verses ago, they were arguing, of course, about who's most popular while Jesus is saying he's going to be killed and of course, in the verses to come, as we know, they are going to completely abandon him when his greatest trials come. They're asleep in the garden while he is literally sweating blood. They scatter like mice when he's arrested. Peter denies him while he's being falsely accused, doesn't stick up for him. But Jesus overlooks all of that failure and rewards their faithfulness, however small it seems to us as we look at their behavior in the Gospels. And however great this reward seems to be by comparison, it's just mind-boggling. They were seeking greatness. He corrects them for seeking greatness, but then promises to them what? Greatness. The reward is genuinely tied to good that they've done 
and yet that reward is still portioned out to them on the basis of grace. Sometimes we talk about uh, rewards in heaven. There's a whole discussion of, of degrees of reward. And what I would want to be clear on as we think about that is that whatever reward we get in heaven, we receive that according to grace, not according to law. Our best services are filthy rags. My best devotions contain enough sin to condemn me eternally. And this principle, it's so beautifully illustrated for us. When we think about the disciples, they've been with Jesus, and in the time that we've seen them with Jesus, we see plenty of reason to condemn them. They don't get it. They fight with each other. They boast and brag and seek their own glory. And Jesus doesn't look on all of that pride and all of that junk. He says, you've stayed with me in my trials. That's what he sees, and that's what he values beyond its apparent worth to, to you and me. In his grace, Jesus delights in the lives of those who follow him. If you have trusted in him, that includes your life as well. We've talked about what it means to follow Jesus, and it isn't easy. Seeking our own recognition or comfort, a life of a complacent consumer, that comes naturally to us. That's easy. Following a crucified king taking up your cross, that is difficult. And so it is vitally important that we keep this model of discipleship before us. And the model is Christ. But are we ever going to live up to the model of Christ? If you've been following Jesus for a while in your life, you've probably figured out by now that when you reach the end of your life, you'll still be like the disciples were in many ways, still prideful, still self-absorbed, still not getting it, still prone to completely miss whatever it is Jesus is trying to tell you, still lusting after earthly goods and earthly glory and recognition in the eyes of people around you. But you've also been following him. You've been walking with him. He's been leading you. He's been working in you and through you. And when he returns or calls you home and you drag your sorry, exhausted self across the finish line, still not getting it entirely, not completely repented, what does he say? He says, well done, good and faithful servant. If we have died with him, we will also live with him if we endure, we will also reign with him. Life following Jesus is rewarded by his grace, not because of our merit. We ultimately, at the end, as we sang earlier, we gain from his reward. We endure, we reign with him. Let's pray. Father, you have called us to take our cross and follow you. We are simply too weak to do that and at times too sinful to even desire it. So we acknowledge that we are completely dependent on your grace if we are to do what you have called us to do. And we understand this to be exactly the point. 
This is about your glory and not our own. And so we pray that you would give us your spirit, that you would help us to remember Christ, remember who we are called to be. First and foremost, though, to remember who Christ is, what he has done for us already. Remember the cross. Remember that he was numbered among the transgressors in our place so that we, in your eyes, are no longer ever counted as transgressors, counted as beloved children in whom you delight. Help us to rely on your strength and help us to rejoice to know that it is according to your strength that we do whatever it is you have called us to do in this life, whether it's um, sharing the gospel with a neighbor or a loved one, whether it's encouraging a brother or sister in Christ, whether it's leading in your church or serving in your church, pulling weeds or preaching in the pulpit. We do all of this as humble service in the spirit of Christ. And when the road is difficult and we sense that we are weak and not able to live up to this task, Remind us that Christ has interceded for us, that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us, that when we are not even able to pray as we know that we should, to take comfort and strength knowing that two persons of the Trinity are praying for us. And it is in the strength of God himself that we stand. Be glorified in us, we pray in Christ Jesus' name.